you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, band. Well, welcome, Kaleo. Good to see you all. As Aaron said, my name's Chris. Glad that we can gather together. Even as I was sitting here and singing and reflecting, uh, just reminded I say this often, but I think it, it means something that, like, we could all be somewhere else doing something else, and here we are. And I also want to just acknowledge that for every person here, it's not like the easiest thing to do to walk in to the doors of this church building and gather with some people who you may or may not know, or a place that might remind you of something that you've been through before. And so, uh, I want to just acknowledge your your courage today and and give you the opportunity to just be you in this space, um, and whatever that might mean, we, we welcome you uh, to that. And we're going to eat a little bit later as well, so uh, there'll be a chance to, to share that space together, which my hope is that we would find new friends uh, in that place who are on this journey with Jesus that we're all on. It seems like a fitting uh, time to, to begin that journey anyway, because it is the season of Advent, and it's a, it's a specific season that launches the church's year-long calendar, right? It it begins, obviously, at a strange time because it's, what, November 28th right now, and so we're beginning again in November 28th. There's something about the season of Advent and the waiting involved in it that just speaks to the present moment we all find ourselves in. The, the world we live in, I think the way in which we walk around in it. Advent's a season of waiting, but also a season of waiting on God. And that can be just this, this really disorienting juxtaposition. Because, of course, God is already here. We're acknowledging that, right? That God's already acting and already with us, doing what God always has already done. And that's where the mystery is in all of this. We're waiting on God to do something, and yet God's always been present, always with us, and is always doing something. And so Advent is a season then, right, in which we wait for God to do what God's always done. And that's an interesting idea. I think it's not so much waiting for God to begin to act like God or be a better God. It's different. It's when we learn to wait with God. And that's the invitation, is that we would learn to wait with God over the next four Sundays leading up to then Christmas and the birth of Jesus and the advent, the coming, right, the arrival of baby Jesus. But in the meantime, what do we do? What does this season invite us to do? We learn to wait And the best way to learn to wait is to learn to pray as Jesus prayed, seeking in our prayers that we would become like the Jesus who walked around on this earth, that we would pay attention to his rhythms and his practices and his ways. There's one other way to think of Advent, and this is my favorite, and it's the convergence of three Advents. The word Advent, again, means coming or arrival. And so we have the coming of baby Jesus via the incarnation, right? God in the flesh. That is the one we probably think of the most. But then we find ourselves also encountering the second advent, the coming of Jesus daily in our lives by way of the Holy Spirit. Every day, God showing up through his spirit. And then it's the coming of Jesus. When Jesus returns to restore all creation and redeem all that is broken and divided and dying. And we're like, yes, Jesus, come quickly. So the Advent season is an invitation to both remember a story that's been told for God's people all along the way and then to join it at the same time. So with that in mind, I'm going to pray and we're going to dive into a passage that is crazy. All right, let's pray. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, we acknowledge that you are here with us. Even as we sang, immerse us in your presence. Let us know you more. Let us be reminded and let us receive your love for us. Give us ears to hear what it is you want us to hear today. Give us hearts to receive it. Help us to encounter you in some meaningful, impactful way. It could be so small and subtle, but would you give us eyes to see it? Meet us in the midst of singing and praying and passing peace signs to one another and the meal that will follow and in the preaching of your scriptures, God. Would you give me your words to speak tonight? I pray that I wouldn't say anything that's not for you or from you. And if it is, I pray we wouldn't remember it, God, because this is all about you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So the first passage in the Gospels that we look at in the first Sunday of Advent is found in Luke 21, 25 through 36. So sure, feel, feel free to follow along, but it's a, it's a wild passage. I'll just tell you that right now. And it actually makes me love the shenanigans that are in the scriptures all the more. Like there's just something about it. You're gonna be like, what? why are we talking about that on the first Sunday of Advent? So I'm gonna set the stage a little bit before we dive into it. So don't read ahead. Okay, don't read ahead. I promise I'll read it, right? Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry on earth and has been going to the temple each morning and spending his night on the Mount of Olives. So you can kind of position him in Jerusalem there a little bit. He keeps going to the temple and does some teaching. Then he camps out the Mount of Olives at night. Pretty good gig. The scene unfolds that we're about to read after some of his disciples begin talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the decorations that adorn it. Right, so you can imagine them looking at this beautiful building, right? And they're checking it out, and it's just so nice. And then Jesus joins the conversation as they're saying those things. And he says, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Well, like, that's not a chill thing to say. The disciples are admiring the temple and all of the memories that it provides. And Jesus is like, just you wait. This is the temple that they and many like them are taught to believe that everything would center around forever. Like this is where you find God is at this temple. But actually, historically speaking, in just a few decades after their conversation, it would be destroyed. And that's what Jesus is about to foreshadow. So our current scene unfolds as Jesus offers an answer to their question. When Jesus chimes in and like, hey, this thing's going to be wrecked. They go, well, teacher. When will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to take place? And so now Jesus is about to respond, and we only get a glimpse in this passage of what he said. But I want, I want you to have this in mind because the language is wild. Like, we already know that. You're going to be like, what is going on? But what's happening is Jesus is responding to what we could call a co-text, right? So he's essentially doing two things in this passage simultaneously. Okay, so you pay attention to that. So there's going to be these signs that they're after, right, that Jesus is about to proclaim. And it's less this idea of a proof of what's to come, and it's more of an omen of what is unfolding. Okay, so check that in his language. Just so that the present and the future are definitely represented, but these are apocalyptic words. These aren't just like, it's going to happen just like this, just you wait, right? It's a little bit more of the omen of what's unfolding before them as he reaches the end of his ministry on earth. So here is part of Jesus' response, picking up in Luke 21, 25. I thought I was going to read the whole thing to 36. 
Jesus is talking and he says, and there will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and the strange tides. People will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth, for the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. So when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up, for your salvation is near. Then he gave them this illustration. Notice the fig tree or any other tree. When the leaves come out, you know without being told that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. For that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. Ah, the hope of Advent. <laughs> right? And that, that, that's just what we were looking for. Here's what's going down. And I, I mean, I'm just going to state the obvious, I guess. Right? That this isn't all that comforting. You're not like, oh, I feel good about this, right? This is Jesus implying the world will convulse in more suffering, suffering of cosmic proportions, right? Strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars, nations in turmoil, perplexed by roaring seas and strange tides, people terrified at what they see, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and we're like, where's the hope in this? This is the beginning of the church calendar. Like, we're supposed to launch off into a season of becoming God's people, and this is what they hit us with. So maybe, before we even wonder where the hope is in this passage, we've got to ask, what does it mean? Right? What does this mean? And as we mine out the meaning and the hope, I just want to say this. It's helpful to remember when interpreting the scriptures that to take them seriously does not mean that we must take them literally. Okay, so let's keep going, all right? Verse 27, right after the sun and the moon things, then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. So when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up for your salvation is near. Whoa, Jesus. Jesus is talking to his disciples, right? They're the ones who are watching the temple, curious what was gonna go on with all the handy stone work there. But he's also speaking in public. Because that's where he keeps showing up to. And they ask this question in public, so they're all present in public at this time. Right, Jesus and his disciples are there, but there's also this public listening in. And he wants them to know, right? Because this thing's almost over for Jesus. He wants them to know that he, Jesus, is the agent of God's liberation. The son of man that is the human one. Right, like think about that. He's talking in this language, the son of man coming on a cloud, but the son of man means the human one. So it like puts him like right back on the ground. That's the one who's the agent of God's liberation. And he advents, right? He arrives or he comes on the scene with great power and sets everybody free. That's what 
Jesus was intending to do. N.T. Wright says it like this, and I think this will give you some good context because this is really confusing still. He says, the coming of the Son of Man must be understood, as first century Jews would certainly have understood it, as the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is the place where he's talking about the Son of Man. One of the most popular prophecies of the day, this passage was believed to speak about the time when God's true people would be vindicated after their suffering at the hands of the nations who had oppressed them. So here's Jesus at the end of his ministry saying, this is what I'm up to, and it's what I've always been up to, and now it's being fulfilled in your very midst. And T. Wright says this a bit more. He says, the best way of understanding this passage in Luke is then to see it as a promise that when the Jerusalem that had opposed his message is finally overthrown, which actually happens, right? This will be the vindication of Jesus and his people, the sign that he has indeed been enthroned at his Father's side in heaven. Because at this point in time, right, the disciples and the people gathered at this temple, they do not know that that's true of Jesus. They're still intrigued, but he hasn't even been crucified yet. And he's saying, you will know eventually. Luke, the author of this gospel, and then ultimately Acts, he believes in the second coming of Jesus. He says as much in Acts 1. But this passage is not about that. It's about the vindication of Jesus and the rescue of his people from the system that has oppressed them. That's what he's saying to these people right now. As they look out there and people are unbelieving of who Jesus is and what he's came to do. So he arrives, the first advent, right? The incarnation, the human one destined to die in solidarity with all of the victims of injustice. And you know why Luke writes it like this? Because Luke said at the outset of his gospel, this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to proclaim good news to all of the people who exist with their backs against the wall. That's what Luke's Jesus has been up to the entire time. So of course that's how he's going to finish it out. He's just using apocalyptic language to really bring home the point, which for us is super confusing. For first century Jews, they're like, oh, this guy's serious. I see what's going on here. The judgment bringing Jesus as he preaches a message like this, forces us to reckon with our own complicitness in the systems of injustice and join the chorus of who Jesus is saying is gonna be set free going, well, when is it gonna come? When is it gonna advent? When is it going to arrive? We need a Jesus in our midst who will answer that question. And so Jesus says, when all these things begin to happen, and it seems that they have happened, and you could maybe look around our world now and say they're happening. And Jesus says what? He says, stand and look up, for your salvation is near. One of the best songs of this season of Advent and Christmas as a whole is when we all sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Arrive, Advent, God that is with us. Arrive, arrive, come, come. That's why we cry out. And we listen to that cry because there's many of us who are crying out. Come, Lord Jesus, and grant your children mercy. What does that mean for us? How do we join the cry? Before we get there, I want to say this. Imagine again Jesus sitting with his disciples at the temple 
which is really hard for us to imagine. But just like there's a hillside over here where they've been camping, and they're down here in the valley, and there's a temple there, and they're sitting there. And what they're going to experience from that point forward is much worse than what Jesus is even speaking in this passage. Like, think of what unfolds for those who he's trying to get to pay attention to what he's up to in the world. The temple they're looking at and admiring, it'll be destroyed actually prior to Luke finishing writing this gospel. Like, let that history, like, you're like, what? The temple's destroyed for real, and then Luke finishes his gospel about a decade later. So he knew when he's telling this story and recording it, he knew of the hopelessness tangled up in the message yet he included it anyway. The people that he's writing to are recovering from the destruction of this temple, but they've already encountered the risen Jesus. And honestly, this is the tension of Advent. Like, that names it. Like, what the, he wrote in the temple, destroyed, where's the hope? And it's like, but Jesus is already risen. He's already with you. Oh, but I didn't see him. I didn't notice. I wasn't aware. And so everything in our cultural moment invites us to get things sped up, to be easy, to be answered with the tap of a finger, to rush through the cycles of pain and discomfort, to be explained away. And here's Jesus not, tire, not entirely reassuring, say, well, only the Father knows when all things will be made new. So hang in there. And we're like, hang in there? hang in there, right? So we wait and we probably swear a bit while we wait because we know that what Jesus has been up to in the world up to this point is to remind us that it doesn't have to be this way and then we're like, well, why is it this way? And then we go, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm exhausted that it's still this way. It's 2021 and it's still this way. And what's likely to happen to people exhausted from the waiting of God to show up and set his people free. Here's what Jesus says. He says, watch out. Pay attention, look. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. For that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. Intense language. Again, that we don't need to take literally to take seriously. But it sure seems like Jesus is saying, stay alert, keep watch, don't let your hearts be dulled. Don't fall asleep. It would seem Luke is implying that the danger for those of us who follow Jesus isn't like some dramatic rejection of the faith or maybe even a refusal to step up in a critical moment. It's literally the fear that we would be lulled to sleep by the worries of this life. And we would lose vision for God's presence and power before the presence and power come to full fruition. Which is kind of crazy. Because then you kind of go like, well, how do I know if I'm being lulled to sleep? Like imagine you're laying in bed tonight. And then just text me the moment you fall asleep. Like, 
We don't know. We can't do that, right? Like, we, that's the thing about falling asleep. We can never go like, I know exactly when I fell asleep. It kind of just happens. And I think this is why we need each other. Because sometimes some of us are really tired. We're tired that things are the way they are. And we need others to keep watch, to keep alert at all times. Maybe to give us an elbow in the ribs from time to time. Hey, pay attention. Are we sliding into slumber? Are we going to be caught unaware? And I just like... That imagery for me of Jesus naming that at the end of all of these crazy things that he's saying in all of this is really the invitation where we all go, hold on. Jesus, wake us up. Wake us up to pay attention to your kingdom unfolding in the world, to watch for ways to participate in the work of your justice and mercy, to awaken to God's reorienting love. Wake us up so that we would pay attention to that because that's the juxtaposition. Again, it's actually here right now. And so the question is, who are we going to be if we need each other so much? Will Kaleo be a church that keeps alert at all times? Will we live awake to the active love of Jesus? Teresa of Avila, she prays a prayer that invites us to join in the, the coming of Jesus, the advent of Jesus and the here and now as we wait. And here's how our prayer goes. She says, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Our allegiance with Jesus, that's, that's the invitation. Are we with Jesus? And if so, our individual work as followers of Jesus makes sense only in relationship with the shared work of others who have been similarly entrusted with responsibilities for tending to God's work of healing and loving and proclaiming and holding fast while we wait on the Lord. Howard Thurman is a, is a hero of mine, and I want to tell you a little bit about some things that he has to say that will kind of like bring us to the point of like, okay, well, we'll keep waiting together, I guess. So anyway, he helps me live in this world. And his most influential book is called Jesus and the Disinherited, and he says this is why he wrote that book. He says, for those who need profound succor and strength to enable them to live in the present with dignity and creativity. Sucker is a really good word, by the way, S-U-C-C-O-R, assistance and support in times of hardship. But in that book, he uses this metaphor of people living with their backs against the wall to describe the disinherited or the marginalized, the forgotten, the oppressed, people with their backs against the wall. And he wrote that book in the 40s, and then they re-released it again in the late 90s, and this guy, Vincent Harding, a civil rights activist and a scholar. He wrote the foreword for the most updated version, which is still just in the 90s. And here's what he wrote. He said, in essence, Thurman was surveying the world of the oppressed and asking, 
how it might be possible for human beings to endure the terrible pressures of the dominating world without losing their humanity, without forfeiting their souls. And he concluded the foreword with the most fitting word, and I think this is the one that blends together this passage that we've tried to navigate today. The tension of waiting for God's justice and mercy to reign on earth as it is in heaven. Because he's still proclaiming to us, God is himself, and then Vincent Harding will echo it here in a moment, right? There's, there's still new things to build. There's new worlds to build. There's new visions to carry forward. There's new companions to meet at the wall. There's new days to begin. That's what Advent tells us. Like, let's begin again and wait a little bit to figure out what that looks like. So Harding concludes like this. He says, although Thurman's message of the 1940s was focused on the needs of the black representatives of the disinherited in the United States, now it is clear that his message is replete with significance for many other people as well. And this is his list in, I think, 1997. Latinos, Native Americans, Southeast Asians, and many women, gay and lesbian people, they're the most obvious additions to Thurman's community of the wall. For the pressures of this post-industrialist, capitalist world order have pushed many other people against a variety of unfamiliar and unexpected walls. And we are all hounded by the inner demons of fear, hypocrisy, and hatred. So Thurman must be taken very seriously when he still offers this work for those who need profound support and strength to enable them to live in the present with dignity and creativity. And then Harding ends the whole thing with this. Shall we gather at the wall? Shall we gather at the wall? Because at the wall is the tension of the Jesus who joins us there, the one who is with us, and the ones who keep crying out, come Lord Jesus, come and rescue us and set us free. Fleming Rutledge writes, to be a Christian is to live every day of our lives in solidarity with those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, but to live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. Thus is the tension of the season of Advent. So band, why don't you come on up and I'm gonna leave you with the tension. And the invitation of leaving you with the tension is this, is that it's not yet resolved. And so let's just sit in it a moment together. My encouragement would be to allow your imagination and your time of prayer in a few moments to just be centered at being with Jesus and the people that have gathered at the wall. See if you can find yourself there or if you can find a friend there, a community there, a group of people there who say together, come Lord Jesus as we wait. Let's pray.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would you illuminate your healing, loving, liberating presence to any who feel as if their backs are against the wall right now? Let them see that you have joined them there. And let them see that they are not alone. And God, for any of us who are not living with our backs against the wall, would you move us to meet you there? to join in solidarity as Jesus did when he walked this earth, when he went to the cross and experienced the most gruesome deaths. We flatten out the systems of oppression, the hierarchies of power, and would we stand together at the wall as your people, Jesus, waiting on you to draw us forward, to restore what has been broken, to redeem what has been dying. Meet us in the tension, the tension of the waiting, Lord. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.